You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Welcome to Worldview, the Irish Times podcast bringing you perspectives on foreign affairs from around the world. I'm Patrick Smith. On our podcast this week, Hungary's President Viktor Orban, who helped popularise the term illiberal democracy, is cracking down on academic freedom. Our Central European correspondent, Dan McLaughlin, reports on the protests on the streets and from the international community. But our first theme today is Brexit and Gibraltar. A violent little storm has emerged out of a clear blue sky over promises from the EU that Spain will have a veto on any post-Brexit trade deal between the EU and the UK affecting the ROC. I'm talking to our Spain correspondent, Guy Hedgeco, about the reaction there to the fuss, and to our London and political editors, Dennis Staunton and Pat Leahy, about the extraordinary, some might say downright silly, reaction in London to the EU negotiating draft and how it might play into Irish concerns in the talks. Guy, this is a pretty neuralgic issue for Spanish politicians, but they seem to have sought to play the whole thing down. Well, that's right. I think they've played it down partly because they're rather pleased at the outcome of this. They, they see this as a victory. Um, certainly, um, the foreign minister, Alfonso Dastis, um, seems to have expressed that feeling. He said he was fully satisfied with, with the outcome of this, um, of getting this clause into um, the draft negotiations. And Dastis said, you know, when he, he was asked about how he felt it had all gone, he, he said, you know, um, I, I'm very happy with it. And he seems to have been rather surprised by the British government's response, but he's been rather cool about that. He said the, the Spanish government is a little surprised by the tone of comments coming out of Britain, a country known for its composure. I think some people in the UK are losing their temper, but there's no need for that. So that seems to be very much the, the, the tone of the response to the government here, just playing it down, playing it cool and trying to show the British government as having overreacted. Contrary to some reports in, in the British media, somewhat hysterical reports, there is no claim for sovereignty in the clause. Uh, but do we see in it a strategy to advance a claim for sovereignty, at least during the course of the talks? Well, I think that the claim for sovereignty is such a sort of far off. It's so ambitious from Spain's point of view that I think it's very unlikely that they're even looking that far ahead at the moment. I think a more realistic aim for the Spanish at the moment is probably to try and change the, for example, the tax status of Gibraltar. They're, they're constant, you constantly hear complaints in Spain about uh, Gibraltar's status as a tax haven, um, the fact it has uh, much lower taxes than the, the surrounding Spanish territory, and that that uh, is bad for Spain. And so I think that is one area that we might see specific pressure um, regarding Gibraltar when it comes to this debate. I mean, the, the, the sovereignty issue is always, you know, it's a, it's a big one in Spain. People complain about the fact that Britain owns uh, Gibraltar. But what we've heard in the media and, and from politicians the last few days is they, they don't really take very seriously the idea of actually getting back Gibraltar in the short or medium term, certainly. What they're looking at are more the issues surrounding Gibraltar, such as tax, such as uh, the economy of the place. Dennis, some Brexiteers, the tabloids and one ex-Tory leader, have read the draft EU negotiating clause as tantamount to a declaration of war. Uh, Michael Howard has talked with battleships, the Falklands and Maggie Thatcher. This is all a little over the top. Yes, and it also came out of the blue because, uh, on, if you recall, last Wednesday when Theresa May sent her letter to Donald Tusk, the mood music was all, for the most part, pretty, um, pretty peaceful and cordial, uh, except for this implied threat about linking security cooperation to a trade deal. But that um, was kind of brushed over, and then the uh, the European Union gave their response in the draft negotiation guidelines. And again, the initial reaction to those guidelines here was very positive. 
perspective. And then they noticed this clause where they said that um, after Britain leaves, no agreement between the EU and the UK may apply to the territory of Gibraltar without the agreement between the Kingdom of Spain and the United Kingdom. So this alarmed Gibraltar because what uh, Gibraltar had been told by the Spanish uh, over the last few months is that if they wanted to uh, remain uh, in the single market, that they would have to accept uh, Spain's uh, offer of joint sovereignty with Britain. Uh, a few years ago, in 2002, uh, this idea of joint sovereignty uh, of, of Gibraltar being administered jointly by uh, Britain and Spain was put to a referendum in uh, Gibraltar, and that was rejected by 98% to 2%. And so uh, there's no appetite for that, obviously, in Gibraltar. So the Gibraltarians fear that um, you know, that, that the deal that's not going to, that's go, that, that Britain will negotiate that's not going to apply in full to Gibraltar, which is appears to be what the Spanish are saying, or at least they would be allowed to say under these draft guidelines. And uh, and so they're concerned then that that uh, despite Spain saying we're not being threatening in any way, that actually somehow behind all of this is Spain's interest in the sovereignty of Gibraltar. Now, Spain, Gibraltar is, at the moment is outside the customs union, but inside the single market. And something like 10,000 workers from Spain cross every day, which is, amounts to about half the Gibraltarian workforce. Um, it is complicated what, what uh, uh, will happen when Britain withdraws from the EU. Yes, it is complicated. As you say, uh, Gibraltar, although it joined the European Union when Britain joined in uh, 1973, uh, it has stayed out of the customs union, also out of the common agricultural policy because they've got no agricultural land and they're just about able to grow some trees, as uh, the chief minister, uh, Picardo, said recently. And so they're out of uh, some elements of the, um, of the European Union already. Uh, and the fact is that the deal which is agreed with um, between Britain and uh, and the European Union after Britain leaves, we don't know the shape of that either. We know that Britain would like a very comprehensive deal with uh, a free trade agreement which would give uh, generous access to the single market. We don't know how much of that uh, they're going to get. And then this clause in the draft negotiating guidelines, if they survive, uh, if, if the clause survives and there's no reason to believe that it won't, that then means that uh, Spain will actually effectively have a veto over applying any of that arrangement to Gibraltar. And there what uh, Spain is likely to demand at the very least is some change to uh, the nature of the Gibraltarian tax structure. 40% of the Gibraltarian economy is uh, financial services and online gaming, which is basically gambling. And uh, and so uh, what uh, and the Spanish have for many years complained that, uh, that that really effectively Gibraltar is a tax haven. They've got special one-on-one -on -one arrangements with some companies, and, and so they're undercutting the Spanish. There are also a few territorial disputes because under the Treaty of Utrecht in 1713, the Spanish say they only ceded the castle and the town of Gibraltar, not the territorial waters. And so they claim that uh, Gibraltarian uh, fishermen are, uh, those who fish, are fishing in Spanish. Spanish waters, and you get occasional spats uh, over fishing and also over smuggling, over tobacco smuggling. That's also been a big issue. And so that border that you mentioned, the Spanish from time to time, although it's obviously much more open and fluid than it was in the days of General Franco, uh, nonetheless, it's uh, occasionally the Spanish do create um, 
problems there where they'll suddenly decide that uh, because of some other dispute that they're going to slow down the the movement of uh, goods particularly and of people sometimes as well through that border. There is also a reality that the EU draft text states a reality that that applies to all 27. In in other words, that all the states will have a veto on any final trade deal that is agreed between the EU and uh, Britain. And, And so Spain is not being singled out except by mention. Yeah, there is an explicit mention there. Uh, You're quite right that uh, the actual Article 50 negotiations, in other words, the divorce deal or the deal uh, about Britain's actual withdrawal, that's decided by qualified majority in the uh, European Council. So Spain wouldn't necessarily have a veto. But if uh, Britain does actually get a trade deal afterwards, that has to happen after Britain leaves the European Union and becomes what they call a third country. And there, every country, uh, it's, it's decided by unanimity and also needs to be ratified in the national parliaments and possibly the uh, regional parliaments uh, all around Europe as well. I think where the significance is, though, is that until now, because both uh, Spain and Britain were in the European Union. Up until now, the European Union has remained neutral on the whole issue of Gibraltar and Gibraltar's future. Uh, Whereas now, what they've said quite clearly is, well, one of you is out and one of you is in. And so we side with the uh, the party that is uh, a member of the European Union. And that's, I think, an important message with regard to to the approach that uh, the European Union is taking. It's as if they've effectively decided that Britain is already gone and there are now 27 of us on this side of the table. And everything to do with Gibraltar actually does happen in the context of the sovereignty issue. Uh, There have over... A number of years, over a number of decades, there have been various attempts to resolve this. Uh, and, uh, and Spain has always said that it wants joint sovereignty as a stepping stone towards reclaiming the territory. But uh, the fact that Gibraltar uh, and Gibraltarians, there are only 30,000 of them, but uh, but they know what they think, and they all uh, are very clear, um, almost all of them, that uh, they don't want joint sovereignty with Spain. Now, Pat, British preoccupation with controlling immigration uh, may well mean that EU will want a hard border between Gibraltar and Spain in terms of, of, the, of the movement of people. And the border issue resonates with Irish concerns in, in these uh, negotiations uh, about the border in our, in our own country. And uh, there are other par- parallels with uh, our own concerns. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to remember a couple of things when you're talking about the future of, uh, of, of the EU borders and of the the border in the north and the first is uh, the border with the north the the, the first is that the, there's there's essentially two borders that we're talking about there's a security and immigration border and there's a customs border now the security and immigration arrangements between Ireland and the UK are governed by the common travel area and that received a uh, a fairly emphatic and explicit treatment I think in uh, not just from the British last week but also in uh, in Donald Tusk's document on Friday and that's reflective of, of uh, I think what the Irish government were looking for from both the 
Commission, which will conduct the negotiations, but also from uh, the other EU member states over over the last number of months. The matter of the customs border, and sorry, and on, on that, and on the security and immigration border, I suspect that the whatever happens in Gibraltar, and I, I mean, I have no idea what's going to, I have no idea what's going to happen there, uh, except I'm pretty sure that the Royal Navy won't be going in to sort it out. But uh, I, I think. It is, we are certainly, I mean, not to count chickens or anything, but we are certainly on a recognisable track towards the preservation of the common travel area in terms of the security and immigration frontier between Ireland and the UK. What happens with the customs border is a horse of a different colour entirely and depends principally on what arrangement the EU as a whole reaches with the UK. Now, even assuming the best case scenario of a a comprehensive, which is what certainly the British say they want, a comprehensive free trade agreement between the UK and the EU, up to and perhaps including a a zero tariff arrangement, uh, you may still have to have some sort of border controls uh, on the north or some sort of customs monitoring. That wouldn't necessarily have to be checkpoints. There's a lot of work gone on, observing the way similar frontiers work elsewhere in Europe and so forth. But that will depend, you know, there's lots of talk about e-borders and, uh, uh, and and so forth. But that will depend on, I think, the shape of the, fin- uh, of the final deal. There will be less of a bilateral imperative on the customs border than there will be on the security and immigration border, which is what most concerns people. But in the, particularly in the case of, of Gibraltar, um, is, it, is there a problem with the intrusion, if you like, of the, of the Gibraltar issue in terms of our making a special case for Ireland? Is, is the Department of Foreign Affairs going to have specific problems because we are not a, a separate case? Any deal done with us would presumably have to be done uh, similarly with with, uh, with Gibraltar. But actually, I think what the situation of Gibraltar currently in this, you know, peculiar position that it is inside the single market, outside the customs union, outside the common agriculture policy, demonstrates one of the things that the, uh, that the EU is good at, and that is, uh, you know, finding bespoke arrangements for individual cases, fudging some matters, kind of half ignoring others. We remember various European treaties that were subject to special Irish protocols and uh, and so forth. So I think that the intrusion of the Gibraltar issue, uh, in as much as it was or appeared to be a, a kind of a surprise to the Department of Foreign Affairs, doesn't necessarily complicate the picture or complicate the process of um, uh, that 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 it is trying to pursue in terms of securing Ireland's interests in this kind of peculiar tripartite negotiation. And in the con- that context, I, I think you you feel that we got really as good wording ourselves as as we could expect in the in the Tusk document. I think well, I think we did. Um, I think you know if you had said to the Irish government. Uh, you know, a couple of months ago, that this would be the outcome of the Tusk document they'd have been, and the and the British statement that preceded it, then they would have been reasonably happy. Now, all it is at the moment is words, but the words signify uh, an intent. I think we will see over the coming months when the negotiations get. 
uh, get up and running, how important these things are to the British and how important uh, they are to uh, the EU. But certainly to have them uh, to have them placed so prominently in the documents and in the uh, uh, and and so explicitly in the statements, uh, I, I think is as good as Ireland could have hoped for at this stage. Important difference, by the way, is that uh, that Britain decided that it was going to prioritise the Irish issue, and so did the Europeans. And so, from an early stage in the pre-negotiating period, it was clear that Ireland was uh, was very high up there. They did nothing like that for Gibraltar. And I was in Gibraltar last year before the referendum. And there was a great deal of anxiety, uh, an overwhelming majority, 90-something percent of Gibraltarians voted to stay in the EU because they knew there was going to be a problem. But they also discovered afterwards that the British weren't really prepared to do all, to do all that much for them. And the history, the recent history of Gibraltar, as Gibraltarians know, is peppered with various backdoor attempts and uh, and secret negotiations between Britain and Spain, which Gibraltarians feel has been uh, an attempt to sell them out and to do deals behind their backs. Britain says they won't do any deal behind their backs about sovereignty. But they haven't made any commitment about the substantive issue as to whether the trade deal that Britain negotiates is going to have to apply in full to Gibraltar. And so Gibraltarians know that England is not called perfidious Albion for nothing. And so they're going to be on their guard. But their, their hand is very, very weak compared to the hand of Ireland and even Northern Ireland. I think that's an interesting point um, uh, that, that Dennis makes about the Gibraltar. Gibraltarian suspicion of perfidious Albion, because I think if you if you look, if you step back and look at, you know, the progress of British politics since the and the evolution of the British position since the referendum in June of last year, I mean, on the morning after the referendum, the morning of the 24th of June, we didn't know whether what sort of a Brexit we were talking about. We didn't know if they were going to be out of the single market, if they're going to be out of the customs union, uh, if they wanted to negotiate their own trade deals and so forth. Ever, ever since then, and this is, you know, despite the, uh, you know, what has evolved since then has been directly and, to my mind, conspicuously in the face of the wishes of both people in Northern Ireland and people in Scotland, never mind the poor uh, Gibraltarians who, for whatever their, uh, whatever their place in British political mythology, presumably are not as important as uh, uh, to Westminster as Scotland is. And, you know, I think there was a course of action open to Theresa May in the wake of becoming uh, becoming prime minister to say that uh, you know while we you know Britain voted for exit it's not clear exactly what type of exit that it voted for but taking into account the votes in Northern Ireland and Scotland it's clear that we must either remain within the single market or uh, at the very least remain within the customs union she has chosen not to do that listening to the hard Brexiteer voices who are uh, almost overwhelmingly English Tories at Westminster rather than the peripheral parts uh, of the UK. So, um, as as Dennis said, uh, one can immediately, uh, one can certainly uh, sympathise with any uh, nervousness that the Gibraltarians may be feeling on the so subject. So you'd be pretty sceptical that uh, Theresa May regards uh, Gibraltarians as, as British, as Finchley, as, as somebody once uh, famously said. Dennis, just finally, can I ask you about the Spanish attitude has been interesting. They, they, they've tried to play things down um, very much and say really nothing's going on here. But 
one of the things they did in the last couple of days was they issued statements which suggested they changed their position on Scottish admission as an independent state to the European Union. Uh, that will not have pleased London. No, it's, made, it's complicated matters for London. It's obviously gladdened uh, some hearts in Edinburgh. But until now, the conversation party, of course, had been about the question of whether Scotland would remain, could remain in the European Union uh, after Britain left. In other words, the Scotland would never leave. It's now quite clear that uh, Scotland will leave with the rest of the United Kingdom. And then at some stage in the future, an independent Scotland could apply to join the European Union, uh, although actually that's probably uh, fallen down the list of priorities for the Scots at this stage. They're talking more about the European economic area. But uh, what the Spanish have now said is that if uh, Scotland were independent and were to apply to join the European Union, that uh, they wouldn't attempt to veto that. Uh, so, so I think it, you know, it's an important shift. But uh, it also reflects a shift in, uh, in, in circumstances in that that whole question of Scotland remaining in the European Union without ever leaving uh, is now moot. Thank you very much, Dennis. Thank you, Pat. And we'll be back in a minute with Dan McLaughlin on Hungary's latest erosion of human rights. Hi, I'm Cathy Sheridan, the host of the award-winning women's podcast. It's a twice-weekly look at the world from a female perspective, full of feminism, humour, politics, sex, storytelling, relationships and more. New episodes every Monday and Thursday. You can find us on irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts or on your preferred podcast app. Viktor Orban, Hungary's Prime Minister, came to power in 2010 and has become one of the loudest voices of the new populist right in the European Union. He popularised the term illiberal democracy. He's vehemently hostile to immigration, accusing it of being a dilution of Christian values. And he's had a pretty abrasive relationship with his fellow European Union leaders. He's now accused the Central European University in Budapest of violating regulations in awarding its diplomas and has introduced new regulations. The university is funded by philanthropist George Soros, who Orban says is a part of an elite capitalist class that puts cosmopolitan values over national interest. What, what exactly is the Open Society Foundation and has Orban got good reason to fear it? Well, the Open Society Foundation was founded by, by Soros back in the early 90s. Uh, he was born in, in Budapest and, and after the fall of communism, he decided to put a large chunk of his money, the money that he earned as a, as a financier and as, as, a, as a hedge fund manager, back into Hungary and the, and, and the former communist bloc to try and develop civil society, to try and encourage um, democracy, to uh, encourage transparency and anti-corruption uh, institutions and the like. It's sort of the thing that uh, Orban in, in the early days would surely have approved of. Over time, with, with Orban's move to the right, he's found himself increasingly at odds with, um, with Soros. And now, particularly on issues like the uh, refugee crisis and... Um, uh, allegations of corruption against the Orban government. Orban sees organizations funded by Soros as being behind these and, and, and effectively undermining his government. So that's uh, that's what's really put him at odds with Soros in the last few years. And, and what is the Central European University? The Central European University is, is ranked and has been ranked for many years as, as um, Hungary's top university. It was founded by Soros again back in uh, 91, I think it was. Um, 
And he created it as part of these efforts to, as I said, foster sort of democracy and civil society and what he saw as Western values in the former communist bloc. So he created this institution which would provide very high quality international education for people from across the old uh, the old communist bloc, that's Eastern Europe, through the Balkans and across the former Soviet Union. So providing uh, bursaries for many students to come across from places like Central Asia and from Russia, from the Baltic states, to come down to Budapest and spend several years there studying and getting a kind of Western-style education. And working in the region, it's, it's very interesting how when you you know you can travel up to Estonia or down to Bulgaria or across to I don't know Uzbekistan Georgia, you very often meet people in um, in powerful positions in state administrations at at the top levels of civil society who have been through um, Budapest and spent time at the Central European University. And it's it's very much independent of the state and has a substantial staff. I gather three hundred and seventy uh, faculty members and uh, the president is an international figure, Michael Ignatieff. That's right. It has a very high uh, profile, certainly in the region and internationally. Um, I think it has something like 1,400 students at the moment from more than 100 countries. So it does have a very high profile. It has very high standards. Um, but it is seen as another kind of liberal, a, a really a sort of bastion of liberal education in Hungary and exactly the kind of thing that, that Orban is uh, suspicious of at the moment. In, in the debate today, um, I can bring you up to date. The parliament, which is dominated by Orban's allies, did actually pass this law, this new education law, which threatens Central European University. That's been passed today. Um, and in the debate ahead of it, an opposition MP um, challenged Orban, saying that his government just seems to resent anything that it doesn't control. And that seems to be a kind of um, motif for his for his rule at the moment. And certainly uh, that applies to, to Central European University. And the, the legislation, I understand, requires the university to open a campus in uh, in America if it is to function in Hungary as well. Yeah, Orban's basically said, well, um, this is uh, that the Central European University is sort of cheating in competition with Hungarian universities. It says he's been saying, why should CEU be able to offer um, degrees that are recognized in Europe and in America? when it doesn't have a campus in America. So he insists that this, this legislation is not targeted at CEU. He says this is just to close loopholes, to make um, a level playing field in the education sector. And he says, look, CEU, all we have to do is we, we need to go off and make an agreement, a new intergovernmental agreement between Hungary and the states, states which will allow you to operate here. The problem is, uh, as well as having very... Uh, you could say, dire relations with, with Orban, Soros has been extremely critical of Donald Trump. You know, while Orban hailed Trump's election late last year as the, the dawn of a new um, political era in the world, Soros was calling him a, a would-be dictator and a conman. So it could be very tricky for um, CEU and Soros to, negotiate, to, to to get the kind of deal that they would like if... Um, to continue their operations in Budapest if it is based on a deal that is agreed effectively between the administrations of Trump and Orban. And Trump, Trump is, is clearly not likely to be particularly sympathetic to Soros, who he also regards with deep, deep suspicion. Absolutely. I mean, so when you look at the people around Trump, when you look at people like Steve Bannon, you look at the um, media outlets that Trump supposedly relies upon, 
Breitbart, Infowars, these kind of websites, they all depict Soros as part of this international liberal conspiracy to bring down national governments and create a kind of new world order. A lot of it is really wild conspiracy theory stuff, but but it, it's the kind of thing you now hear from, from Orban's allies and increasingly from other people around the region as well in, in Central Eastern Europe, as well as from people close to Trump. And the decision has provoked uh, considerable protests inside Hungary, but also internationally. Yes, absolutely. We've had um, an open letter from uh, something like 150 academics, including uh, from across the world, including 14 Nobel laureates, urging Orban not to go ahead with this move. Even the U.S. State Department has waded in and, and advised against it. Um, and in terms of protest, yeah, we saw a large protest at the weekend on Sunday. We had several thousand people out in the middle of Budapest. And immediately when this law passed um, earlier this afternoon, something like an hour ago now, um, there were immediate calls for, for more protests, even as early as tonight. So we could see later on in Budapest on Tuesday, we could see crowds gathering outside Central European University to, to protest against the law that was passed today. And they will be demanding, the protesters, that uh, they'll be calling on the president, Janos Ader, to not sign it, to send back this piece of legislation. Unfortunately for them, Adair is, is a, a, a very, very strong loyalist, a very, very close ally of uh, Orban and his government. And finally, Dan, can I ask you uh, quickly about the Serbian presidential elections? Alexander Vucic has romped home. What does that mean in terms of uh, relations between the, uh, the Serbs and the European Union? Vucic is really seen as a kind of... Uh, element of stability, a guarantor of stability, it seems, by European leaders at the moment. The Balkans have been a bit shaky in recent months. We've, we've got an ongoing crisis in Macedonia at the end of, la and, and they haven't had a government there for many months. Uh, snap elections last December didn't resolve the issue. The crisis there is quite acute. Um, we have in Montenegro at the end of last last October we had an alleged coup, which was which was foiled, and allegedly the Russians were behind that. So say the Montenegrins. Uh, Bosnia continues to have difficulties. There's no real integration there still between the different communities there. Relations between Kosovo and Serbia have been very strained as well. In January, the the the, the current president, who is outgoing, uh, Tomislav Nikolic, said that Serbia and Kosovo had been on the brink of conflict over um, various issues uh, earlier in the year. So the European Union looks to Vucic to kind of stabilize things and, and to try and keep a lid on things here. They see him as a character who can um, neutralize the, the, the really extreme, potentially violent ultra-nationalists ultra in Serbia. Um, at the same time, Vucic is, is trying to balance relations between the EU and Russia and China as well. He says he wants Serbia to join the European Union, but at the same time, he's maintaining very close ties with Putin, um, fostering economic ties, uh, buying and expecting delivery any day now of fighter jets and tanks from Russia, which is something that has unnerved Serbia's neighbours. So when you talk to opposition figures here in Serbia, I'm in Belgrade right now, they say that this is short-sighted on the part of the European Union, that you can't really trade away democracy and um, transparency uh, in return for stability. Ultimately, it will, it will come back to bite you. And they say that while the European Union may be glad that they have a guy uh, that they see as an ally in charge in Belgrade keeping a lid on things, uh, at the same time, he is dismantling checks and balances, he's undermining democracy, he's allowing corruption to flourish among his allies, and sooner or later there will be some kind of 
uh, blowback from this. But at the moment, uh, Vucic is preeminent. He enjoys control over um, the political scene, the security work, the security services. Um, his allies are dominant in business and the media. So it's, an, it's a level of control and, and a, a degree of dominance that we haven't seen in Serbia since the days of Slobodan Milosevic. So it remains to be seen how this goes. But at the moment, the European Union is keeping its fingers crossed and hoping that Vucic will be the man to maintain stability. And ultimately, he will take the country towards the European Union without dismantling democracy and the institutions in ways that we also see elsewhere in, in Central and Eastern Europe. In Hungary, for example, and we're seeing... You know, similar things even for, further north in, um, in Poland now as well with the Kaczynski-controlled government there. Thank you very much, Dan. Thanks to Dennis Staunton, Guy Hedgeco, Pat Leahy and Dan McLaughlin, sound engineer Rob O'Sullivan and our producer Jennifer Ryan. I'm Patrick Smith. You can find Worldview and other Irish Times podcasts on iTunes, SoundCloud and Stitcher or at www.irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts. 